Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, um, to our wonderful listeners and audience. Uh, once again, we're so delighted to be here. My name is Wendy Mota, and my pronouns are ella, she, her, hers. And I am your host for... Uh, this great episode of Pivot Towards Promising Futures. Today, we have the great honor of having um, Catherine Chugro Dos Santos. Did I say that right? You did. You did, Wendy. I was so nervous and I practiced, but um, uh, we are so lucky, honored, and fortunate to have you to discuss how we can center LGBTQI survivors in the work uh, in the fields of domestic violence. So anything from intervention and services. And um, yeah, so we're so happy to have you. And I'm wondering, Kat, if you could take a minute to just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about some of the work that you do. Absolutely. So thanks so much. And feel free to call me Kat because everybody does. Uh, I'm Kat Chagrudo Santos, as you said, and I'm the Deputy Executive Director for Programs for the New York City Anti-Violence Project, or AVP. Uh, AVP is about a 40-year-old organization, a little more than that now, that has worked within um, LGBTQ and HIV-affected communities to end all forms of violence. And I've been working in the anti-violence movements for many decades, and I'm really excited to be here, too. I'm actually feeling really lucky and honored to be in conversation with you, and I really appreciate the work that The Futures does and this particular podcast in particular. Um, so I use she, her, hers, or anything respectful as my pronouns, and I identify as a queer liberation social worker um, and an aspiring ally to communities of color and trans communities and non-binary communities as well. And I think the, the key here is for us to be really raising uh, the, the lived experience and voices of people who've experienced violence who are not part of the sort of cis-heteronormative paradigm, which is the way that we usually hear about intimate partner violence. And so I'm really excited to be here to talk to you today about that. As am I. Um, so let's dive in, Kat, and... Uh, I, I want to kind of maybe provide our audience with a very brief, right? Because we talk to um, and we are listened by primarily folks that are in the field. But I, I thought we can start today's conversation talking a little bit about the TV movement in the Western Hemisphere in the U.S. And so, you know, as you know, I am 100% sure you're familiar. Uh, so the, the work starts in the 60s, 70s here. And really, it was led by, you know, middle-aged white women that uh, had their own lived experiences, right? And so I think, you know, it was a time in the U.S. where um, so many things had happened within the realm of women's rights, you know, and there was, I think, momentum, perhaps to really try to zoom in and really organize perhaps around what else can we do? And so I think it was a, um, 
there was a lot of energy in the country, a lot of um, discussions and a lot of ideas. And eventually, you know, domestic violence programs, services uh, became alive as we know it. You know, I think, you know, when I think about that era or that time, I've always, I don't know, I struggle with the word movement, right? But I think about that time as a time, like I said, where interventions services are being organized. And I think everything was well-intended and, um, you know, not in before, despite the momentum, there was, there was a couple of things concurrently happening. I think there were unintended consequences. And when we think about serving survivors, reaching survivors that don't fall under kind of like that category, which is like white middle age, the unintended consequences connected to that is that services and interventions were developed with a particular particular population in mind, right? And so as the years and the decades go on, Folks that have been in the TV movement are very, um, I, I think, um, knowledgeable, experienced in providing kind of what we know as traditional services. Um, what also happened was that it's, you know, the country obviously is diverse and uh, survivors come from all walks of life, Right. And um, I think what has happened is that we have been, I don't like the word force, but we really have been called to look at what do we mean by services? What do we mean by interventions? What's our reach, you know? And if truly we're thinking about uh, healing and wellness and really giving families what they need and not what's necessarily available. What does that look like? So that's a lot to say. I'm wondering, or to ask, I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on primary prevention in a very general kind of bird's eye view in the field of domestic violence. And in your opinion, like, is there a role for community in creating safety for families and children? It's a great question. And thanks so much for your, I I completely, I really appreciated the way that you talked about the beginnings of the movement and the places I think where there remain gaps and where sort of the impact of, um, speaking as a middle-aged white person, white lady, um, in this movement, I was really raised in that movement. And I have really had my own reckoning to do over my career and my time in this work to recognize all of the factors around violence and both the the conditions in our society and our culture and our world that allow violence to continue and that perpetuate oppression and violence and the ways in which we as white women are often complicit in perpetuating that structural oppression and the interpersonal oppression that I think puts survivors of violence at uh, elevated risk. And so one of the things I think that the movement continues to reckon with and need to do more reckoning with is our complicity in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sort of because of our because of the the basics of the movement, as you said, the early stages being really brave people who did wonderful things and to whom we owe a lot to start this this attention to violence within relationships, but uh, saw the world through their eyes as as we all do um, and did not see the ways in which uh, people's identities impact Mm -hmm. the oppression they experience, which impacts the way that they experience violence and what happens when they reach out for help. So in my work, um, I think, and and certainly the work that AVP does, we really do actually believe that the solution to violence, uh, all violence, has to be within community, right? And community-driven solutions are what we need. Um, both in response work and in prevention and primary prevention. And so specifically, I think that as to build on what you talked about, 
um, the anti-domestic violence movement has really over-relied on the criminal legal system as the primary response uh, synonymous with justice. And we know that that system continues to disproportionately harm people of color, queer people, trans people, non-binary people. And so what we have done in our over-reliance on that system in response um, has impacted prevention as well. And we've stopped talking about, but how do we, how do we change this culture? I think the other piece that's connected to this is that the way that we talk about this movement, in addition to not looking at, to, to not addressing things like intersectionality, the way that Dr. Kimberly mm -hmm. Crenshaw talks about it, the way that Audre Lorde talked about it, that says, particularly for black women, you can't separate right. gender and race if you're talking right. about the ways that they experience oppression, and that is completely true for violence within their families and relationships, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think the other part of that, we're not looking at race as a factor. And the way that we're looking at gender is in a cisgender, heteronormative, binary way. That there yeah. are men and women, mm -hmm. and that all that matters when you're talking about intimate partner or domestic violence is that you are a woman or that you are a man. Mm -hmm. And so we, we have made this binary, and we've made this so narrow mm -hmm. that we are not thinking about my experience of intimate partner violence as a cisgender white woman who ex experienced violence from a, a femme-identified partner is erased in that, as is someone who is experiencing the intersections of structural racism and violence within the relationship wow. mm -hmm. and does not want to go, does not want to send their partner into the criminal legal system where they know they'll be harmed. So thinking about those things and recognizing that the way that we, when we think about primary prevention, we're thinking about how do we change our culture? How do we change our world, right? So that there's no tolerance or space for this violence to keep happening. We can't do that if all we're talking about is gender in a very narrow binary way. And by doing that, by having every, you know, 90% of public, um, public service announcements on intimate partner violence mm -hmm. being clearly intended for cisgender men harming cisgender women in long-term intimate relationships, right? There's mm -hmm. nobody who's polyamorous in that picture. There's no one who's mm -hmm. dating someone of, of the same gender. There's no one who, um, ex and even though we know that LGBTQ people experience intimate partner violence at the same or higher rates right. than cisgender couples. Uh, and heterosexual couples. So the story that we're telling is neither intersectional enough to really understand people as whole, as survivors, as whole people whose intersecting multiple identities impact how they experience violence and what happens when they try to get mm -hmm. help. But it also doesn't talk about what norms do we need to change in That's our right. society, which have to include fighting against and dismantling white supremacy, cis heteropatriarchy. Yeah. So I think that is... You know, we think about that, we need to go back to bell hooks. We need to, to you know, think about um, the women of color who have been talking about this, including queer women of color, have been talking about this for decades, to talk about how do we achieve liberation collectively and collaboratively. And that can't be only in this criminal legal system that blames and punishes and harms people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's got to be building communities where people can access safety in culturally specific ways that make sense for them, where survivors can lead their own decision-making process and do that in a community where they have support. Now, I say that recognizing as someone who's been doing domestic violence work for many decades, that some people currently in this world, the way we live now, are not safe in the communities and that they're faced with this terrible choice where if they try to be safe from the, the violence they're experiencing in the relationship, it means they may have to leave their community. And that happens to, to survivors who are immigrants or live in small um, mm -hmm. uh, linguistically based groups or communities. It happens to queer and trans folks in, in rural areas. It happens in all sorts of places where you have to leave faith communities perhaps. Um, and so I'm not saying we're in a place where every community is ready to be supportive, but I also think we can't right community off. And that's, I right. think, what, what we've been doing.
Yeah. Uh, so I, I really want us to think it's much more complicated to think about mm-hmm. community-based solutions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, and and non-punitive, but but you know, transformative and restorative justice approaches that can hold the complexity of being trauma-informed and focused on healing and accountability together. That's right. I want to. I wish there was an emoji for like microphone drop because that's what I feel right now. <laughs> you are so kind. I'm like, okay, we can end this. Let's wrap it up. Like you, you just shared so much knowledge and so much truth, and I really appreciate you talking not only about beginnings, not only about the role that community plays in prevention, but really, I think you answered the second question, which is like, where have we failed? You know, and looking at the future, where have we failed? I guess I I want to kind of like stay in this vein. And I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on domestic violence services and interventions, right? Like, let's just stay there. When we talk about, you know, you mentioned immigrants, queer survivors, non-English speaking survivors, anything that falls outside of like the mainstream realm when we think outside about of me, outside of yeah. me as middle-aged white lady. No, I mean that though. I think yeah, we have I know to keep naming do. that. Yeah. And I appreciate you, you centering and, and being honest and transparent about that, that I, I don't, I'm not you obviously, but I, I don't imagine that that's like the easiest thing to do, but I really appreciate it. And I think it gives a different energy to this conversation. I think, you know, I'm wondering your thoughts on that, though. Like, what, you know, I, I feel like in this in this realm of DV or the field or the movement, there are, you know, okay, so let me back up a little bit. I'm really excited and I'm having like five thoughts at the same time. That's why I'm like, (laughs) I'm with you. I recognize that. You know, I think I worked, you obviously you don't know this, but I worked at a a domestic violence coalition for, I don't know, nine, 10 years. And right now um, what's coming and surfacing for me to, you know, in this conversation is thinking about either LGBT, like, um, immigrant or non-English speaking folks coming to shelter. I'm specifically thinking about trans individuals that would come and present a certain way, but identify another. And I'm just going to say it, um, staff feeling not equipped to address it, uh, shelter residents kind of like, oh, you know, um, and so I remember this as a real thing. And what what not always, but what happened sometimes was like we're scrambling to place an individual that's a survivor, right, um, in a place uh, where we know, let's say, okay, this is an uh, LGBTQ program, and then what the missed opportunity for me was like, let's talk about this, right? How do we? Um, first of all, how do we? How do we name the elephant in the room? And I'm sorry, like, how do we make sure everybody's getting what they need? And by the time I left, we were having those conversations, I have to say. And we were, you know, having like, all right, we're rearranging everyone in the shelter, we're placing. And so there there definitely was growth there. But I guess my question to to this is not all DV survivors need shelter. Not all DV survivors will leave their relationships. Not all... DV survivors will identify with a white feminist, you know, approach or perspective. So in in kind of thinking about that, what are your thoughts about what services are, uh, what services are available versus what are the needs of survivors? Does that make sense? It does. It does. It all makes sense. And I similarly have 15 thoughts in my head. So I'm going to try to be focused and clear for our listeners. You don't have to. (laughs) But yes. So first of all, lots of like snapping. I'm with you. And, And in fact, these are the conversations that I'm really, I feel so fortunate to have been in this movement for a long time and to be able to have some of these conversations with people. And I'll just share that in New York state, I work in New York city and in New York state, um, my organization, AVP, is partnering with the State Office for the Prevention of Domestic and Gender-Based Violence on 
an LGBTQI plus endorsement project where the government or the state organization that focuses on this, it's a, it's a um, cabinet level um, agency at the state that is working with the organization, um, the Office of Children and Family Services that licenses domestic violence shelters and approves the service programs that are um, mm -hmm. not shelter-based. And we were able to work together to create a list of standards and guidelines of what domestic violence programming needs to do to be LGBTQ inclusive and affirming. So the first thing I just want to say is we have some programs that are completely exclusionary across the country. We have some that are inclusive but are not affirming. And then we have some that are really working mm -hmm. at being affirming, right? And we have this project where we're doing a pilot project with um, uh, a number of providers at the state level who have done some of the work and are trying to do more of the work to be inclusive. And what we realize in this work, something that you said, right, the, again, the initial conversations about intimate partner violence in our country were understandably, because at the time, about some husbands beat their wives. Right. Right? And then the movement, I always say to movement leaders, including people my age or a bit older who are the mothers of our movement, who, to whom I am eternally grateful for, for doing very brave work and, and, and real trailblazing work, mm -hmm. And to say, let's look at ourselves as a movement, a loose movement, right? Where we've adjusted over and over again, right? We, we realized pretty soon into that work that it's not always physical violence that keeps somebody That's in a right. relationship. Uh, we realized that sexual violence happens within intimate partner relationships. We recognize what the economic costs of IPV, intimate partner violence, are, and what economic violence looks like. All these things we kept adding to, right? We learned about cyberstalking. Um, we learned then about the ways in which survivors of different experiences have different experiences of intimate partner violence. We, we learned we need to do things differently if you've got a lot of immigrant survivors or folks who don't um, speak English. And I say that specifically because so much of the, of the service programming is uh, an English first programming, not because mm -hmm. it should be, but because that's how it ends up. And so we know how to adjust and even when it's painful. But mm -hmm. there is a deeper resistance to doing intersectional work that incorporates racial justice, disability justice, and gender justice that is not binary, collectively. And so wherever someone is stuck, maybe they're stuck on uh, acknowledging the, the degree to which white supremacy, as you, as you said so clearly before, was endemic to the the original origin, the original origin, sorry, the origins of that movement and the white supremacy that is so endemic to the criminal legal system, which has defined so much of mm -hmm. resolution and solution and quote unquote justice. So one of the things I think about this that's so important is for us to just acknowledge that, yeah. right? And say, so where do we go now? And the thing that makes me incredibly hopeful at this moment in time is yesterday we just had a panel um i was able to co-moderate a panel with my colleague kathy grant at the state um and we worked with these people who were in the pilot project for the endorsement and listened to them as mainstream domestic violence providers talk about how we can't do survivor-driven, survivor-led work if we're not inclusive of all survivors and we're oh not inclusive God. of their holistic identities. And so this was not a bunch of people who, I mean, there were some folks who have LGBTQ specialization there, but not everybody. And we were talking about how do we, one of our providers is a disability-focused provider. Mm -hmm. So how do they integrate racial justice, gender justice, and disability justice? So really thinking about people, it's starting to really gain momentum that we have to talk about this differently and we have to act on that differently. I'm yeah. not saying it's universal, but I am feeling more hopeful. Uh, and I think Futures is a place that, you know, there is such good work to lean into. Where are we working with people causing harm? Where are we working mm -hmm. with people surviving harm? When are those two things, in fact, intersectional and not exclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's the other piece of this, is the binary of you are either the person who survived violence or the person who harmed someone, 
that's also a false binary, right? right? In an individual intimate partner violence situation, we are not blaming survivors. We're not saying, well, you could have done this better. That's not what I mean. I am survivor-led 100%. But people who cause harm are also often survivors of harm. Oh, my God. I want to say amen right now. I don't even go to church. <laughs> Can we get a hallelujah? I know. <laughs> That's the real, those are the conversations we need to have because we we all know, and, and many providers will lament the idea that if a survivor of domestic violence or intimate partner violence is not a quote-unquote perfect innocent victim, then they're disbelieved. And that's a problem. I have done panels on that. I have written articles mm-hmm. on that. Like, it's mm-hmm. a big problem, right? Mm-hmm. People are complex. Nobody is perfect. Um, and nobody deserves the harm they receive. This extra step, which is to say all of us, you and me and anybody listening, we all have not only the capacity to do harm, but we've all done harm. And we all have to hold ourselves accountable for that harm. And I will say again, I'm just going to name this again, that as a white woman in this movement, part of the harm I have done and have had to atone for and work to repair is not seeing all the ways that I perpetuated white supremacist mm-hmm. nonprofit norms when I ran shelters, when I ran domestic violence agencies, which I still do, but I don't run shelters anymore. But and recognizing we there are different ways to do that. We can be trauma-informed in shelter. And I see so much more of that happening now. We can have a lens that acknowledges racial justice that works collaboratively with the survivors in shelter to say this is why we're gonna bring in trans people into the shelter and this is what that means for us right and if we don't do this now this is the thing wendy that i think that people really don't necessarily that it's very uncomfortable to know that everybody who serves domestic violence survivors understands that if our services don't exist people die Mm. or they live with all of their liberty removed right We know this. We understand coercive control. We understand the dangers and the risk factors. But we don't look at what it means if we don't serve people well, if we don't serve them holistically, and if we allow people's survivors' experience to be erased because we only look at domestic and intimate partner violence in this one cisgender, heteropatriarchal, white supremacist way, people also die. So even when we're opening our shelter doors and our programming, if we don't tackle this collectively together, Mm -hmm. people are dying. Yeah. And and we know this because the stats show us this. The stats show us, mm-hmm. for instance, so I identify as queer, uh, bisexual. Bisexual women actually experience higher rates of sexual violence than either lesbians or straight women. And that's because wow. of biphobia. It translates directly every time they do the stats. We also know that cisgender men who are gay or bi or queer have higher, they're disproportionately represented among fatalities for domestic violence. And that, we suspect that is because the paradigm is so cis-heteronormative that they are not seen as survivors or at risk because they're men. Wow. So, and I will just say, because you can't, we can't not look at this, we also know that if those men are men of color, they are at far higher risk. And then of course we know the trans and non-binary people are always at the most risk with black trans women at the <sighs> pinnacle of risk and the highest level of barriers to getting services because their very identities are challenged mm-hmm. and questioned. Mm-hmm. In our very work, I can't tell you how many conversations recently I've had to have where people want to, and thankfully they're talking to me as a cisgender person so I can step up and take some of this heat and have these painful hard conversations with people where they want to question whether trans women are women. They want to talk about being socialized as men and what that means. Now, there's complicated questions in there, Mm -hmm. but people are who they tell you they are. People are who they say they are. In the same way that this movement has always said, believe survivors. Well, then believe them about who they are as well. And believe them if they say they don't want to leave the relationship, they want to build safety in a different way. And Uh believe them if they say they're also worried about their partner who has been traumatized. Believe them. There are so many survivors who say to us, I just want the violence to stop. Uh 
I don't want to leave, and I don't want this person in any sort of jail. Who are we as providers to say, well, they don't really understand, or they don't mm-hmm. know it's going to get worse, or they... Or, well, all my other survivors say this, so that's reality. Survivors are not monolithic, right? They are people. And they get to tell us what they want. That's right. And we need to listen. That's right. That's right. It's like, it's hitting home for me across so many levels, Kat, because it's like, you know, I I, want to be transparent here. As a Black woman, as a Latina, as a woman, I have blind spots, you know? We all have blind spots. And I have privileges. And I think, like, Mm -hmm. this reminds me that we all have work to do. All of us have work to do, right? And so when I listen to you and and, and you share such candid, important uh, perspectives and expertise, it just, it, like, it really, you know, the word believe has been attached to the DV movement, I think, since since inception, basically. But listening to you, it reminds me that many times it's like believe survivors, and there's a little parentheses that we've left out, you know? Believe survivors, if they're easy to work with, if they fall in this category, or if they fall, and that, you know, it's just an opportunity. Yeah, and I think believe survivors if they match up with what we think survivors are supposed to sound That's like right. and look like and act like, right? That's right. And and I want to be clear that people don't do that intentionally. For the most part, right. people who are in this movement have, they work long hours, they sacrifice a lot, they are here because they want to mm-hmm. end this violence. These are people who are committed. That's why when we had our our panel yesterday, and I know when this airs, it'll have been a couple of months since that panel, but those conversations with people who are actively questioning where their blind spots are, where have they missed, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the things that comes up, for instance, one of my colleague organizations was talking about, we have a racial justice analysis, we are looking at disability justice this way, we're looking at gender justice, but those things are siloed, so our work is how do we be more intersectional? because Mm -hmm. that's complicated. Mm -hmm. And I was just so impressed with their capacity to see that as much work as they had done, and they could have rested on their laurels and said, we've checked all the boxes. But they, as providers of services to survivors, are like, we got to work on this. We all have work to do. So when you said that, I think we all do. And that work is never done. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make mistakes. That's and, right. and, you know, white supremacy is, is really what teaches us that we can't make mistakes and we have to be perfectionists. So I always say to people, you know, recognize when that's what's coming up for you. Yeah, yeah. And as, you know, when I have to face up to having harmed someone because uh, through maybe a microaggression I didn't realize was a microaggression or, or because I failed to see the way that white supremacy was showing up and the way that I was looking at a situation, there's a piece of that that's super painful for me that also has to be tended to. Like people like Rasma Menachem and Ruth King talk about what what does racism do to our bodies, which looks way different for me as a white woman than it is for you as a black woman, but it does something in both of our bodies. So let's look at that and let's find ways of processing and handling and healing from that so we can collectively move this work forward. And the movement has done some good work on looking at the vicarious trauma that we're mm-hmm. all exposed to in doing this work, but not realizing how that intersects with this, this need to do anti-oppression work in an intersectional way that's very, very hard. Right. And so I think that's really important and people yeah. need support. So my, you yeah. know, if we're, if we're doing this work well and we're centering those most impacted by violence, a rising tide will lift all boats. That will make it better for everybody. 100%. But that doesn't mean we only serve those people. It doesn't mean, by the way, that if I was in an ex- if I was experiencing intimate partner violence as a white cis woman, that I would I might not need shelter, right? It just it just means that we have to cast a wider net and really right. think about who's who are we seeing and who are we not seeing. And one thing that I hear still in large national gatherings of people providing domestic violence services. They're doing incredible work in so many ways, and I am in awe of that work. 
And I hear still in 2023, too often people who say, well, I'm just going to say women when I mean survivors and men when I mean abusive partners, because that's who we see. That is no longer okay to say. Oh not just because God. it's yeah. a shortcut and it's, it's an easy out, but also if you're not seeing queer and trans people... There's a problem. There's a problem. Because either, you let me tell you something, you are, and like you said, they're, they're not telling you who they are, and that means you're not serving them well, and they don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're not serving them, and they're dying. I mean, just to be dramatic, they're mm-hmm. dying, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we have an epidemic of of violence, fatal violence against black trans women in this country. We do. A large portion of which is related to dating and intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's hate violence laced through there and anti and the transphobia in that. Mm-hmm. But many of these people are killed by people they are intimately involved with. Mm-hmm. And we're not looking at what that means for our movement and what changes we must make in and if they're telling us that shelter and 911 and orders of protection are not what they need, then we have to listen and we have to be part of providing what they do need. Yeah. And, and yeah. I feel that so strongly and I think that gets, it becomes missing from the conversation yeah. often nationally. Yeah. Kat, thank you so much for this heartfelt conversation. I, we can't thank you enough. Um, We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. So thank you again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to share your thoughts and feedback with us because, well, because they matter to us. So if you're enjoying this episode or have enjoyed any one of our other episodes, please, please click that follow button to make sure you're always in the know and up to date on the latest topics and episodes. And if you're aware of any local or national efforts that are taking place and you feel can add to our discussion, please connect with us via email at thepivot@futureswithoutviolence.org. We are on all major streaming platforms. So please share a link with your colleagues and friends to help us bring these important conversations to as many people as possible. Thanks again for listening today and enjoy the rest of today's episode. Okay, and now we are back um, and let's jump right back in. Um, We've been talking a lot about, you know, the landscape services, interventions, I think we've addressed some of the areas where, you know, the field, the movement, and and just generally, we have failed survivors um, that are LGBT. And and, and just, I think what I appreciate about this conversation is that you've given us this perspective of, um, you know, there's growth, there's opportunity for growth, and this is where we can look at to to advance some of the work that we need to. I'm wondering if what what makes you hopeful, Kat? Like what have you seen, let's say, in the last five years in the field as it relates to services and interventions for LGBT um, survivors that gives you hope? What makes you happy right now? I am happy to say that I actually have an answer for that. And I I think that there are times, certainly, where it's hard to access that hope. It's been a rough Mm -hmm. three years. It's been a rough seven years, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so I think acknowledging that and the capacity that we are so I think the first thing is like, we're having this conversation, Wendy. We're having yeah, it. Yay. And people are going to hear it nationally, right? And and Futures as an organization that has so much leadership in the movement is, is really pushing out these voices, right? I love that. That makes me feel hopeful. And I think, again, just to... Um, just to think about, you know, this group, this pri- this pilot project back home in New York State that I'm pr- part of that is really people in this movement. Um, and some of the, the folks, I'm also working, I, I co-chair a coalition um, called HEARTS, uh, Healing, Equity, uh, Accountability, Restoration, Transformation, Safety. 
and it is formally the Coalition on Working with Abusive Partners, but we have come back together as an interdisciplinary group of people <clears throat> who work with survivors in lots of culture-specific ways and who work with people who cause harm through intimate partner violence. And we come together with restorative and transformative justice principles, with anti-oppression, explicitly anti-racist, LGBTQ-inclusive principles to talk about the complexity of this work and the diversity of people who really want to have the hard conversations, who want to move past all the binaries around gender, around person causing harm, person receiving harm, around only criminal legal system solutions, and talk about community-driven solutions. That makes me really, really happy. <clears throat> I think the fact that our communities within, I identify as part of, you know, queer and trans communities, our communities are paying more attention to violence within the community. So there's actually intentionality among people who are looking at the intersections. Mm -hmm. We're talking about hate violence about our community, but we're doing that in the context of also understanding that that impacts us and our relationships. And what does that mean? And community-led solutions across the way, across the, the sort of the spectrum of how do we prevent violence make me feel really excited, right? And so... I'm really, really excited to think about the increasing variety of voices coming with different experiences who are willing to talk about um, transformative justice, the fact that queer and trans people of color are leading that work in this country. I'm thinking about Adrienne Marie Brown. I'm thinking about Mimi Kim. You know, I'm thinking about um, the way in which uh, we can think we can locate ourselves in the work, do reflection, and then work collaboratively towards liberation, mm -hmm. um, and recognize that this work around intimate partner violence is part of that work. It is not separate from that work, right? That gives me a lot of hope. Um, I think the other thing that gives me hope is just, I have a, I have a, a kid who is part of Gen Z and is you know, already working on a hotline and supporting survivors. and Of course she um, is. That's Gen yeah, Z for you. amazing. <laughs> and I think that this group of people coming up around mm -hmm. the intersections of, of, you know, environmental justice and climate mm -hmm. change and economic justice and disability justice and this intersectional gender justice work, that's what's given me some hope. Yeah. And I think that, you know... I will say the other thing that gives me hope is seeing where I came from. I opened a shelter uh, to that used to only take women and children. And in 1998, I worked with AVP, where I work now, but I was not working with AVP then. But I collaborated with them to figure out how to make my shelter, which, which housed 88 survivors, um, to people across the spectrum of gender identity. And... I will be honest, like I did that with them and I'm very proud of that work. But then we figured out how our programming was not welcoming. Right? Mm. So first we opened the shelter and then we figured out how to do the service mm -hmm. part. That was, the, that was backwards, right? Mm -hmm. So I see how even my own good intentions mm -hmm. probably have caused harm. And so I learn from that and I do more. And so that reminds me and I talk with other people my age and a little older in the movement and say, again, we have... This movement and then the intersecting movements of, of LGBTQ rights and equity, racial justice, we can do this, right? right. Um, and if we can work across these divides and recognize that our liberation is bound together, mm -hmm. that's the conversations that make me excited, make yeah. me feel hopeful. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much, Kat. Where, and I, and I feel like this next question, we of course have just a couple more questions, but... I feel like you. this has been woven throughout our conversation today. But where would you say are areas uh, that are opportunities for growth? It's a time right now, I think, when, you know, this, this sort of incomplete, overdue, and largely inadequate mm -hmm. racial reckoning that this country went through after the public murder of George Floyd in 2020 the movement, the way in which that coincided with the relentless pandemic. We have had so much upheaval, that polarization we talked mm. about, but also so much innovation that's been happening. It is the ideal time. Mm -hmm. There are, There is a recognition nationally that diversity, equity, and inclusion is mandatory in all work. And so 
there are there is more expertise. We have things that the pandemic, if it taught us nothing else, was how to connect uh, across nationally and globally, digitally, and mm -hmm. share information. Mm -hmm. I have a I have a friend who is doing this work in Uganda right now, and I would not have met her if it were not for some of the mm -hmm. the work that's being done that allows people to connect. Um, and I think that there's this opportunity and there are resources. So no domestic violence service provider has to start reinventing any wheels here, right? So there are resources and I, I hope we can share them, right, with the, with the listeners. Like AVP is a resource, the state office, New York State Office for Domestic Violence Prevention is an office that is a that has resources. So if you want to serve LGBTQ people of color in an intersectional way, in Our Own Voices, which is an organization out of Albany, has a report called Shades of Change that looks at that it. intersection, right? AVP has, um, as part of our, our collaborative and coalition work, we, the, the LGBTQ um, Intimate Partner Violence Network in New York State, which we coordinate, has toolkits with self-assessment tools that an organization can use that helps them see where their gaps are and then connect for training and mm -hmm. technical assistance, right? There, everybody can find the local LGBTQ organization and do mutual collaborative work because one of the things AVP as both a domestic violence organization, a sexual violence organization, we're the only LGBTQ specific rape crisis organization in, our, in the state, and an LGBTQ specific organization, we're sometimes talking to LGBTQ organizations about how they can serve survivors of intimate partner and sexual violence better mm -hmm. and mainstream sexual and intimate partner violence providers and how they can serve queer people and trans people better, right? Gotcha. So there's lots of resources that already exist and people can seize that partner, do mutual technical assistance and training, do mutual collaborations to develop shared programming. And for organizations that are providing, I know that we work with a lot of organizations who are doing domestic violence in rural communities where mm -hmm. they're a mm -hmm. one-stop shop, they do everything. Maybe they don't have a local pride center, but there are national organizations where they're able to connect Plug and get that. Yeah. yeah. So there is that work and I think that both gives me hope, but also I think it's, it creates an opportunity that becomes a responsibility not to squander, mm -hmm. right? So I think that, you know, one of the things I think is that my advice to anyone that says like, how do I do this is do the work, do the work, right? And I, and I have ideas of how that gets done, but I think it's, it's really, the opportunities are that there are resources to help you do the work. That's right. And you have to do the work. Yeah, yeah. Kat, the last question that we have here for you is really thinking about this conversation and really thinking about coalitions, organizations, service providers, individuals, just humans that want to do better, you know? What are your thoughts on like maybe one or two tangible steps, like action steps um, that people can take? And I know you've already in this last question talked uh, about resources, right? Which will be, we will try to um, add the links in, the, in our show notes. But what are your thoughts on an organization that, you know, has good intentions, but is still not there yet? I think the first thing I want to say is to that organization, thank you. Thank you for wanting to do better. Thank you for acknowledging you're missing something, right? If we don't do that, then we have lost, right? So mm -hmm. I do actually think I want to take a moment and extend some gratitude. And then I want to say to people, make that commitment to be inclusive. Make an organizational commitment. I have talked to just this week so many organizations who are in the process of re-examining their mission statement. Because so many of the organizations, including places I have worked, have, you know, women and children named in their in their mission statement. We're in their uh, an intimate partner violence organization. And I'm not saying don't name women and children. I am saying let's be more inclusive and talk about what it means and be intentional there. So make the uh, make the commitment. And recognize that if you don't do this work and continue to take risks to do this work, risk making mistakes, risk being wrong, having to repair, 
and, and survivors aren't getting what they need. And we mm -hmm. don't get to then say that we're survivor-driven and survivor-led, which we want to do, or survivor-centered, and we know that can be deadly. That's right. That's so right. I think it's make that formal commitment. And that is a cultural change process for domestic and intimate partner violence organizations. I've been part of these organizational processes, both internally and as a consultant, um, and as a training partner. So what is your what does your community need to know? What does your board need to know? Mm -hmm. What does your staff need to know? What kind mm -hmm. of support, training, processing, technical assistance, and overhaul of policy and procedure manual, all the nerdy stuff, get help for that. There is help out there for that, right? You don't have to tackle it all, but make the commitment, make a plan, a work plan that has actionable, concrete steps, and get support on that. Don't try to yeah. reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah. Um, and so then do the inventory. Where where are you doing well? And let's celebrate that. Mm -hmm. And where do you need to do more? Because all of us, including, I work for a culturally specific domestic violence organization, and we still have stuff we have to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So yeah. do that, do that. I think the key is do that self-assessment, do that inventory, and then make a plan to address the gaps as you find them. And make that a recurring part of what you do and incorporate gender and sexual orientation into your DEI work. That work is not separate from racial justice work. It is not That's separate right. from disability justice work. It cannot be. And one is not more important than the other. We actually have mm -hmm. to tackle them together, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, partnerships, I think, and collaboration and networking are the way to do that. So, yeah. and for coalitions too, coalitions can have such an outsized impact here that's right. When they are willing to have these hard conversations, because they are the coalitions are the place where providers are seen and understood and held so much that if we have some of the, the challenging conversations there in what is often a relatively safe space, so not the funder group, right? Mm -hmm. Not the LGBT group trying to tell you what to do, but in mm -hmm. that conversation, you bring somebody in to have the conversation. And then how do we support each other in moving the work forward? And how do we commit to doing it? It's a key role for coalitions. Yeah. Kat, I feel like we need a part two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always here for you all. We need a part two. This has this been has amazing. This has been so fun. Yes. Thank you. Amazing. Great. Uh, we cannot thank you enough. I am 100% sure this is going to be useful, helpful. Um, and I'm excited to share this with, with the nation, with the world. So thank you so much for being here. Thank Kat. you. Thank uh, you, Wendy, and Futures yeah. for having me on. It's such an honor. And I'm so I'm so humbled and, and privileged to be here with you yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to be in this work with you. Yeah. I'm really excited yeah. that we're both in this work and looking forward to more too. collaboration. I am too. Thank you so much, Kat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. Remember, you can reach us by emailing us at thepivot@futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, thepivot@futureswithoutviolence.org. A very warm and special thank you to Chance Taylor for all his hard work in editing each episode and to Jesenia Gorbea Sufolini and DJ PA for their brilliance and ongoing support in producing the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Wendy Mota.